an ode to plant science on the Norwich Research Park. Uh, after Wordsworth. <clears throat> you could while away the hours, staring dreamily at flowers. Yet would your reveries grant a deeper knowledge of the plant? And how researchers in our region, with discoveries bold and legion, protect both crops and tiny creatures, and harness beneficial features to defend, discover, and understand from the east of Ingerland. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Eastern Promise. I'm Mike Rigby, and welcome to episode 62 of Eastern Promise, where this week I'm honoured to have as my guest Professor Nick Tolbert, Executive Director of the Sainsbury Laboratory on the Norwich Research Park. The power of the plant science being conducted by the Sainsbury Laboratory and the John Innes Centre is immense. Professor Talbot tells us how much is still to be discovered about everyday crops like wheat. Your muesli will never be the same again. And I'll also be joined by Dr Samantha Fox and Dr Shannon Woodhouse to share the exciting details about the STEM village at this year's Royal Norfolk Show. And finally, when the chips are down, the fish must be too. Let's reel in some excruciating puns as we share your favourite chippies on this week's Crowd Sorcery. On the Norwich Research Park, there is the Sainsbury Laboratory, the undisputed global epicentre of plant and microbial science. And deep inside the Sainsbury Laboratory is a coffee room. Nothing extraordinary about it at ground level. It's a coffee room, much like any other. It's only when you look up at the ceiling of the coffee room do you understand the brilliance of the Sainsbury Laboratory scientists. It's not covered in fine frescoes like the Sistine Chapel. It's better than that. It's covered in dents. Why is it covered in dents? And why is each dent signed? Well... You're about to find out. It's just one of the remarkable and fascinating facts bestowed upon us by the Executive Director of the Sainsbury Laboratory, Professor Nick Tolbert. I have always found the Sainsbury's Laboratory to be one of the most enigmatic part mm. of the Norwich Research Park, which is where we are today. Talking to Professor Nick Tolbert, Executive Director of the Sainsbury Laboratory, welcome. To Eastern Promise. It is a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast. Could I start by asking you, please, for a, the potted history of Nick Tolbert? Sure, thank you. Well, it's great to be here too. Thank you for the, the invitation. Um, so, the potted history. So, I'm born and raised in uh, West Sussex in the UK. I did my first degree in Wales at Swansea in microbiology. Then I came to Norwich as a PhD student. And I worked at the University of East Anglia and the John Innes Centre on a joint project. Um, 
which was looking at um, disease resistance in a, a tomato disease, tomato leaf mold disease, and I did my PhD on that. So I was here between 1986 and 1990 when Colney Lane was an actual lane um, <laughs> and, uh, and when, uh, when the Norwich Research Park was, uh, was relatively small, the John Innes Institute was obviously here, the Institute of Food Research. Um, but, um, but just when I left, the, uh, the Sainsbury Laboratory was being built and uh, it was, uh, I, I was here during my PhD for the building of it. And, uh, and my PhD at the, um, was actually funded by the, the, the latter half of it was funded by Gatsby, by the Gatsby yes. Charitable Foundation by Sainsbury. So I, I had a long connection with them. After that, I left, I went to America. I was uh, there for um, almost four years working as a postdoctoral fellow. I lived in Indiana in, uh, in the Midwest at Purdue University. And I started there working on a, a really important disease called rice blast, which is where, where I've really made my career. Mm -hmm. So rice blast is a disease that um, threatens um, or destroys enough rice to feed 60 million people each year. So it's a really important problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I started working on rice blast. Then I came back to the UK and started my own research group at the University of Exeter. I was a lecturer there. Um, and then I was here for about five years. I actually went back to the US for another year, worked for, in biotech for a year in, in a company. Um, but then came back to Exeter um, and, uh, and then um, was a professor in Exeter and then I was head of school. And eventually at the University of Exeter, I was deputy vice chancellor. So I looked after all their research portfolio Yeah, and um, was involved in the formation of their science park and, um, and various research institutes in Exeter. So I was deputy vice chancellor for eight years. And then I fancied a change uh, in 2018, so I came here. So as the as actually the first executive director of the Sainsbury Laboratory, um, the the Sainsbury Laboratory underwent a change in governance and uh, and wanted to appoint a director, and, and I took on that role, and I've right. enjoyed every minute since. Fantastic. I mean, it's it's very interesting. You you, you talk about um, your experience in the US, and this is what one of the things I enjoy about doing this is you can sort of follow any any sort of train of thought down a, a particularly interesting rabbit hole. But I was looking at how in Texas, in the cotton growing areas, there's a virtuous circle between, well, I call it virtuous, virtuous circle between uh, the academic institutions, the agricultural unions and cooperatives uh, in Texas, and the state governance and the county governance. And they're all collaborating together to, to move from the discoveries of the academic all the way around and it, it's always struck me very much that that is i won't say well, this, this is what we've got the makings of it this is what we've got here right now Could, just with your experience the states would you, you want to i i think i think you're right that's what we 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 do have strong elements of that here already so the norwich research park has um almost 40 companies working on it um and, uh, and many of those are indeed taking discoveries from the research institutes and translating them into um, in, into real products that are going to be important for for farmers, growers, for um, and also for for consumers, and some go right the way over into into human healthcare. So um, so we do have that, but do we have the ecosystem as well developed in as in the US? No, not by any mm. means. And and I think that's the opportunity for us. Really, that's the opportunity and the challenge for what the Norwich Research Park could become. Um, and I think has every chance of, of becoming. What I saw in the, in the United States, and particularly when I worked in a biotech company, I was in Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. Um, there you see um, 
a very, very large number of new startup companies. There are three dominant universities in the area, Chapel Hill, Duke, and, and uh, University of North Carolina, and then Research Triangle Park in the middle. Um, and some very large companies like IBM were there at the time, and then lots and lots of startup companies. And, um, and, and you get a real insight working for one of those companies, just how, uh, how much funding is available to you from lots of different sources. There, were lots of, there was lots of state funding, there were lots of private equity companies, but also um, a lot of government money, um, both federal money and state money, which was enabling startups to flourish and to grow. Part of the challenge in the UK generally has been that we're, we're actually really quite good at startups. We're, we have a very good record across Europe. You know, we have more startup companies here than almost every other country in Europe. What we're less good at is growing companies. Uh, we, we tend to exit very early from companies and they get acquired. They get acquired by US and Chinese and increasingly companies and, and other, other, uh, other nations too. But, but we have been less good at growing companies. And, and to me, if you, if, if you sort of look forward 50 years and you think, what would be the signature of success of the Norwich Research Park? To me, it would be there are actually a few real anchor institutions that companies which were born here and grew here and now employ several hundred people and are actually um, well-known um, names. And in addition, a whole engine room of lots and lots of new startups, mm -hmm. some of which will make it and some won't. But within that, there'll be an ecosystem of talent in the area, yeah. which enables that to grow. That's what I think we can become. Um, I think that too. You know, we're, we're not quite there yet, um, but we have all the ingredients. And, and importantly, a lot of uh, people who have arrived here in the, in the last decade or so who really believe that and are making it happen. So. Um, so that's what I really would like to see happen. Well, I think you, I'm going to get a gong and a cheer that goes up every time you said the magic word, which is opportunity, which is something I'm sort of passionate about sharing with the world and potential. Those are the, the, I think if, if I can sum up the Eastern Promise mission in two words, it's sharing that with not just the outside world beyond our region, but also internally, because I think there's lots of people who, who have connections with colleagues all over the world they don't often share those stories within, uh, within the region. So they can get, we can actually see what you've just brilliantly uh, elucidated, which is the huge potential and will to make these things happen. And, and you'll go to Cambridge and they'll talk about this building in, with a hushed reverence that mm. I find quite nice. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 I think it, you're right, it can be done. And, and I hope that, you know, um, I hope to see it done. Um, and, and, and record it being done. Mm. But just for those who don't know, I was looking at the kind of the difference between what the John Innes Centre more broadly does in terms of uh, genetics and microbial science and uh, using that to make new discoveries. And I thought a very, very poor shorthand would be that what the Sainsbury's Laboratory does is make sure that those plants and microbes are protected and nourished in the first place so that the John Ennis Centre can do all this extra on top of that. Yeah. Is that is that a good way of putting it, or is there a more detailed picture I'm not capturing? I, I, I think that is a good way of putting it. I mean, we are very focused on plant disease. We want to understand why plants succumb to disease. We want to know what makes them immune to the disease, and then we obviously want to be able to ensure that our crops have durable resistance to disease by, a, by an understanding of how the plant immune system operates. And then on the pathogen side, we need to understand, know our enemy. We need to know 
what enables a microbe to be able to invade and colonize a plant and proliferate within it. Um, and it's by an understanding of, of that biology can we actually devise new strategies to prevent diseases from occurring. Uh, and, and importantly, we know that many farmers rely very, very heavily on fungicides, for example, to, to uh, protect their crops, understandably, because they're very good at what they do. However, we know that also there is an environmental impact to that. Yes. Um, all those chemicals are ultimately derived from oil, so they're, they're all ultimately part of the 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 petrochemical problem that we're in uh, the fact that you know the fossil fuel um problem we're in so we do need to um give provide farmers with solutions which are durable um profitable but uh but don't have an environmental impact and we need farming eventually to become fossil fuel free that's the goal and a goal of a lot of what we do at tsl is associated now with that um so can we deve develop better genetic forms of resistance the type of resistance that's been used by plant breeders for generations, but, but by understanding what the genes actually do, can we then develop durable resistance um, to enable us to, uh, to, to grow wheat, to grow things like potatoes, which are so heavily sprayed with, with, uh, with fungicides, can we grow them without any chemical intervention? Um, in a way that they'll resist yeah. disease. So that's, that's what we try to do. We've, we're very much a discovery institute, we make discoveries about plant immunity. A lot of the plant immune system was discovered here in Norwich. Um, big elements of it, the first immune receptors were discovered at the Sainsbury Laboratory by Jonathan Jones Group. Um, the whole concept of immune receptor networks, which is how we're beginning to understand how certain resistances work. That was discovered here by Sophie and Camoon's group. Um, RNA interference, gene silencing, discovered yes, of course by yeah. David Balcom's group here. Um, so many of the, uh, the big discoveries in plant immunity uh, were made at the Sainsbury Laboratory. And what we're aiming to do is, is carry on that, um, that track record of success in terms of, of new discovery, but also to translate that activity into proper durable solutions. I remember asking Lisa Perkins at Astral Park, when they come up with a new innovation or a new technology, does she get a breathless techie running in saying, guess what I've done? And she said, yes. Do you get something similar? Like somebody racing to you and going, we've, you know, we've yes. cracked this, that, this yes. is, that's fantastic, Absolutely. I love it. We have a, there's a real sense of excitement here. And um, we have, um, we have a tradition at TSL that when people have, uh, have made a discovery, they, uh, they will normally pop a champagne cork and it hits the ceiling of our coffee room and then they inscribe on what the discovery was. Oh, that's amazing. And our, uh, and our coffee room, which we'll show you afterwards, is, is peppered with discoveries made here. Oh, that's um, brilliant. So we celebrate every success and we, uh, importantly, all the different research groups celebrate their success. Um, we celebrated one last week, uh, my colleague Wembo Ma, extraordinarily talented uh, scientist who we recruited from, uh, from the US a couple of years ago now, um, her group made a, a, a really big discovery um, in terms of uh, the operation of plant immunity, and we celebrated that. We celebrate all the discoveries yeah. by all of our colleagues. and um, uh, So, yeah, there's a, there's a palpable sense of excitement here a lot of the time. People will dr literally tell you, that, look at this and bring you into the microscope and show you something <laughs> on a screen and say, look, look what this is showing me. So, yeah, it's a lot of that. That must be a huge buzz for you if you get to look it's down a, the microscope. It's, and a go. Great, it's a great buzz. There's, um, I think the, the, um, 
the the culture that really sums up uh, the Sainsbury Laboratory is very much as a can-do strategy, but very much high risk, high reward. We're we're lucky that we are funded in such a way that um, that enables us to take risks, and we do we do we therefore do take a lot of risks in the re research we do, um, but therefore we can make very long leaps. We can make very large um, conceptual yeah. leaps at times, and that it is very exciting. Um, so. Yeah, I think that that's wonderful to know because often I think incorrectly that uh, there's kind of a North perception of a Norfolk mindset as steady now, you know, go you steady ball. That was a very bad Norfolk accent. But it's really great to hear that there's that kind of can do philosophy, that go get them philosophy, that the risks are high, the rewards are great. Um, and, and that's 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 wonderful to know that, that, that that's happening here and the future of this institution. I mean, it might be a bit earlier means for you to go into the future, but obviously I've, my attention was obviously drawn when I was looking into this, to the HP3, healthy, healthy uh, um, I've got to get this the right way around, healthy plants, healthy people, healthy planet. I don't know if they're interchangeable. Yeah. And uh, our vision um, for achieving a safer, healthier and more sustainable future through the power of plant and microbial science. Could you perhaps, for those not familiar with the project, because I first saw it in a presentation at the Science Festival from Penny Hundleby. Describe the scope of this vision and where it's come from and who's going to be involved in bringing it to, eventually, we hope, to life. Okay, so the, uh, the well, it's, it's a, a hugely exciting um, prospect for the, for the Institute. So, um, so HP3 is a, is a project which is um, between the John Innes Centre and the Sainsbury Laboratory. And we have thought about a completely new way, really, of doing our science to try and break down all the internal barriers to us being able to, to collaborate, but also to, um, to carry out science in a very different way. So, so currently, for example, um, we have some wonderful platform technologies here which enable us to do high throughput analysis. So we can, uh, we, we can, uh, investigate crops at quite high resolution by bioimaging, for instance. We can look at them um, under very high-powered microscopes and find out what's happening within cells. We can also uh, use mass spectrometry to measure all of the different compounds within them. We can do that with small molecules. We can do that with proteins. We can find out what's happening inside. We can also obviously sequence genomes at very high resolution too. Uh, in the future, we need to see all of those in the same place at the same time. <laughs> uh, we anticipate that the leaps in technology will mean that when you look down a microscope, not only will you see a picture, but you'll be able to measure everything in that picture. You'll be able to measure every constituent, every protein, ultimately all, every molecule. That's the way science is moving. That's the way things are going to, to work. So in order for that to happen, you can't have a series of buildings where everything is siloed in different buildings. You can't have a, no. a biochemistry department. Um, <laughs> you, you can't have a department where you're just carrying out... Um, uh, say chemical synthesis or in a department where you're you're just going to be analyzing proteins all of that has to come together so hp3 at its heart there's a big capital project which is um brand new facilities for the john innes and, and, and the sainsbury laboratory but they integrate all this technology together at the, at the center of it there's the advanced technology center um, which actually houses all of these different platform technologies but all seamlessly so they all yeah. work together all work in at the same uh, in the same way. There's a lot more collaborative space uh, within the building. There's also research hotel space, which enables companies to spin into the 
uh, institutes as well as spin out. So we can yeah. actually have companies which would um, use our facilities and also occupy those facilities as they grow. So doing um, uh, the formation of companies through pre-seed and seed funding, a lot of that would happen in-house. We'll have space to do that before they move into into incubator space and move into the innovation centers. But at the same time, companies of all different sizes would be able to actually uh, work in a far more integrated way with us, which at the moment is very difficult because of the architecture of the buildings, the yeah. age of the buildings, but also the way in which those technology platforms operate. This actually requires a different way of them operating. They have to have a certain level of, um, uh, of, of, of essentially overhead that they've got a certain amount of, of free time that they can use for external collaborations. So it's, it's not just the facilities, although they're going to be absolutely state of the art, um, it's going to be the way in which everything is managed too. And we've really thought about this a lot. The two institutes have spent a lot of time thinking about what are the current barriers to doing that. And HP3 has been born out of that, out of that dialogue over, yeah. over, over many years. Um, it's going to be by far and away the, the, the best uh, set of facilities in plant and microbial sciences anywhere in Europe, if not the world. It's going to be really something. Um, and uh, also net carbon zero. It's going to be the first net carbon zero laboratory in the UK. Really? Um, yes, it's going to be, uh, we're recycling heat, for example, from the data center into the glass houses. We're, um, it's, um, it's got lots of low embedded carbon in the way it's uh, designed. It's going to be a beautiful building, all timber clad, um, and, uh, and with a lot of um, solar energy that's actually going to, uh, to, to run all of that equipment. So it's going to be a, a net carbon zero, I and mean, it's going to be a statement of the of sustainability about how Norwich is going to be leading the world in in, um, in this area. He's absolutely, you're talking my language now, absolutely. Um, I mean, you, I was going to ask, come on to ask you about the step changing capability. I think you've laid that out quite quite eloquently. Um, so what, what impact, and again, this is slightly asking you to re repeat what you just said, but I, I, I'm just thinking specific technologies like augmented reality, which is, is not quite I mean, I've, you, when you wear sort of the goggles, you can see the rest of the room, but you can still see, I think uh, they got me looking at BT at a jet engine mm -hmm. and you can sort of go inside and poke your head around. And I can imagine doing that with, um, you know, microbes, um, uh, you know, virtual reality, artificial intelligence or any of these things kind of what, part of what you were, you yeah, were saying. So there's a strong artificial intelligence component to what we're doing. So um, we use a lot of machine learning now in uh, in terms of the, the type of algorithms that we use to to analyze proteins, to analyze protein structure, but also pro the way that proteins interact with one another, the way they form signaling complexes. So a lot of that is is informed by artificial intelligence and also by structural analysis, which is by cryo-electron microscopy and cryo-electron tomography. So a lot of those technologies will be integrated into this. There's a very, very strong computational aspect now to everything we do. The other thing about the technology center is that everything is going to be uh, you know, networked to everything else. All, mm. all machines talk to each other. Um, and, uh, and that enables you to do analyses which would be impossible currently. And again, we're anticipating the fact that uh, we're going to be generating vast amounts of data. So there is a big uh, data component to this. There's a new data center which actually will uh, service all the institutes, so the Erlen Quadrum, um, as well as uh, John Innes and, uh, and the Sainsbury Laboratory 
it takes advantage of Erlem's um, world-leading expertise in genomics, in evolution genomics, and the wonderful uh, work that Quadrum does in health. Um, yeah. If you put the institutes together, you get a real nexus of sort of food health. You, know, you go all the way from um, you, you go the, the, right the way from sort of farm to fork, I guess is what people say. But it goes right the way through to to gut health and yeah. health and well-being. There's, there's, there isn't anywhere quite like that anywhere really in the world that does all of those things in one place. I mean, uh, you, you, you're brilliant at answering questions before I ask them, which is brilliant. Um, the picture facing humanity that's laid out in the HP3 vision is as simple as it is stark. You were talking about the loss of arable land at 23 hectares a minute, mm. which, which would really make me kind of, oh, blimey. Um, more humans are to put it bluntly, more humans are coming into the world than leaving it. Um, and uh, the way in life we, we have, particularly in the West, however you want to couch the West, but particularly in the, in the Western world, um, it tends to take for granted where, you know, where things are coming from, where they're going to, uh, etc. Um, and it's coming at a huge cost to the natural realm that we, there seems to be a kind of a reluctance to understand, let alone to pay it. Um, exhausted by the pandemic, um, we're failing to pay attention to more serious problems like antimicrobial resistance. And then we've got the climate crisis on top of that, as if all that wasn't enough. Um, that's more than obviously we can expect the Sainsbury laboratory to deal with on its own. And you've, you've kind of laid out already how there's that nexus growing here. So how can you not just on this park alone, but across the region and, and indeed globally, what does stepping up to the challenge look like from your from the hot seat at, at the... Uh, well, well thinking? I think we have to play to our strengths. You know, there are, there are as you say, that if you put all the problems together, it looks insurmountable, it looks huge, mm. but, but actually just need to break it down into its component parts. So the way I look at this is that the, uh, the intellectual space that we occupy is, is understanding how plants succumb to disease. So let's try and deal with that, because if we can deal with that, at the moment, um, irrespective of all of the, the spraying of fungicides and uh, pesticides around the world, we still lose between 30 and 40% of our crops every year across the world. So um, if we could actually deal with that, that gets us quite a long way to the uplift in um, production that we're going to need. We know that, um, in the future, we're going to have to redesign many of our crops to have much lower inputs and to be able to withstand extreme weather events, uh, drought, flooding. Um, they're going to have to operate with a lot less fertilizer. They're going to have to be very high yielding um, and they're going to have to be very resilient. That's really tough biology yeah. to crack. And, uh, and the John Innes Center, our colleagues there, will be absolutely the forefront of cracking those problems. They've already got great track record in that, the, the biofortification work that they've, yeah. they've led, um, the amazing work they've done in designing future wheat, for example, yes, you know, the, yes. which is really breathtaking, really. There's, there's some wonderful work right across the John Innes in trying to address some of those really knotty problems. Our bit of that is to make sure that once that we've developed these fantastic crops, they don't die from disease. Yes. So the yeah. Sainsbury Laboratory <laughs> is going to solve that part of the puzzle, and we're going to try and provide solutions that stop us um, having to, to spray chemicals on fields. Um, so that will be our part of it. Um, but the Norwich Research Park as a whole actually has a, a really important part to play in antimicrobial resistance 
understanding the potential of the microbiome, which is, um, that's really fundamental to the work being done at Quadrum and Earlham. So trying to understand how the microbial community um, enables crops to be more resilient. So we're only really now learning um, in the last couple of decades really about the way that uh, soil ecosystems work to promote plant growth. Um, there's a lot of work in that area at the um, at the at the at Earlham and Quadrum. Um, Earlham's involved in the Tree of Life project, looking at biodiversity and and how that will ultimately enrich um, and enable us to deal with things like antimicrobial resistance. So I think the park as a whole has got a big part to play in it. We've also got UEA has got world leading expertise in in, in climate. Clearly, yes, um, one of the very best places in the world for climate science. And, um, and they're also incredibly strong in, uh, in international development, social sciences, so to be able to translate a lot of these activities. So I think collectively, there's, we have a lot to offer. Mm. Um, and, and in every one of those areas, you can point to people that you could go anywhere in the world and they'll have heard of someone from Norwich working in them. Yeah, yeah. I think we, that, that so often in the narrative that comes across, at, 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 not, not from the park, I wish there was more of a, a, you know, enthusiasm and excitement conveyed about what's going on here because it it's absolutely gripping. I mean, it I've read is. only ten percent of the genetic potential of wheat has been explored. Yes, uh, indeed. really. Yeah, and uh, and and we now have the tools to exploit it within uh, within the, the the wheat scientists at at, uh, at the John Innes. You know, they they're now really able to identify where that diversity is and, and then deploy it appropriately. And that's been really hard. Wheat's a difficult crop, you know, it's a hexaploid, it's got six copies of each chromosome, three different genomes in it. It's, it's, it's um, uh, fiendishly difficult to yeah. work with, but they have tamed it here, um, <laughs> you know, un under you know, the leadership of, of Graham Moore and, uh, and, uh, and Christabel Wowie and Diane Saunders and, and, and many others, um, um, Simon Griffiths, lots of people here at the, yeah. at the Institute who've uh, really been at the forefront of, um, of working on, uh, on wheat genetics. And that's followed tradition of Mike Bevan and others here. I mean, it's the, it, there's been a strong tradition of, of that. Um, you know, the, the, the reason the Sainsbury Laboratory is in Norwich was because it came here because the Johnnies was already here. You know, it came, that's interesting, it, yeah. It came here because, um, it was the, some very far-sighted individuals in the, in the Gatsby Charitable Foundation in the late 1980s understood that plant immunity might be a, an area that was tractable if it was invested in to, to understand. And they said, well, where do we put it? Uh, do we put it in Cambridge? Do we put it in Oxford? Do we put it in, I don't know, in Edinburgh? Uh, and they looked around the country and they realised, no, the place you have to put it is Norwich because this had already, even then in the late mm. the 80s, it had more expertise in plant molecular biology than anywhere in the world already then. And, they, and that's why it's here. That's no-brainer really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's fascinating because all I knew about wheat, other than, you know, I'll never look at my Weetabix in the same way again after this, but um, all I knew about wheat was one mention on one episode of the West Wing when they talk about dwarf wheat. Um, and now we've got is it semi dwarf wheat? Did I? Yeah. Or, so that's the yeah the foundation of the green revolution is the semi dwarf varieties of uh, wheat and rice that enabled us to uh, to dramatically increase yield, mm. and now uh, it's sort of fundamental to the way we grow we we grow things. If you look at the wheat from the, the you know from the uh, the nineteenth century, it's uh, it's very very tall compared to the, to any of the wheat growing now, but couldn't carry 
it was putting all that energy into growth and none of it into grain. Yeah. Now it puts all the energy into grain. Um, and, uh, and again, in terms of plant architecture, what we've got to do in the next few decades is revisit that because we need even bigger ears of wheat and we need yeah. even larger leaves to carry uh, to, uh, to capture sunlight. And we need them to be deeper rooting in order that they can, uh, they can uh, pull in more nutrients from, from lower nutrient soils mm. with less nitrogen input. So there's, that's what we need to do next. Yeah. yeah. So, so what's the deciding factor in, in what kind of global problems get to the sort of the top of the inbox for the Sainsbury's Laboratory? I mean, because I know you've, you've, you've been looking at uh, uh, the Sub-Saharan Sub Africa's food requirements. They're expected to triple um, in, in a really, really scarily short space of time. Um, work's been done with Kenya uh, and Ugandan institutes. Yeah. So what, 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 what is the sort of de decision-making process that gets, gets um, to the top of the inbox, as it were? Right, well, well we are still predominantly cur curiosity-driven. So it, uh, it still is the fact that our group leaders have ideas and we let them pursue them. Um, and, um, but their ideas increasingly, and everyone at the Sainsbury Laboratory uh, is involved in in uh, in both discovery science and translation, and in fact, it's so much so that they wouldn't recognise the division. I don't think anyone here would uh, would really recognise that division. It's mm. just what we do. So we 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 study a, a disease problem. We want to attack it fundamentally, understand how it works, but we also want to translate. We we want to to use that knowledge to develop better crops, uh, yeah. and, we, and that is in our a seamless, it's deep in the DNA of the institution, that's what we do. There's a phrase um, one of my colleagues, Sophie and Camus, uses, which he calls it gained in translation. Right. Um, so there's a lot of play on words compared to lost in yeah. translation. So, so gained in translation, meaning you actually, you're, you have this wonderful feedback loop. You learn more about your science when you try to apply it. You actually, you make bigger discoveries by attempting to yes. uh, discover it. The, the, uh, the great scientist Richard Feynman once said that you don't understand a scientific problem until you've engineered it. Right. There's a certain element of truth in that. You, you, unless you've tried to use the discovery to, to change the way a crop's grown, you yeah. don't really understand the biology unless you can do that. Yeah. Um, so, so to us, it's very much a productive sort of feedback loop. It's not, there isn't a, a, a department that applies and a and part that does discovery. Everyone does everything here. Do you, do, you, do you get much into the lab yourself? I, I have an active research group. We all do. So, um, oh, wow. Um, I, you know, my, I'm a group leader here. My group make uh, discoveries. We do, we do a lot of, you know, I, I run a big program on, on rice blast and, uh, and wheat blast. Um, and um, I don't think you could lead the Sainsbury Laboratory unless you, uh, you actually were an active researcher. I yeah. don't think it could be done, really. Um, it's it, we're, too, we're we're such a research focused in, institution that um, that we have to do. But that is still what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's still what motivates me. Um, I mean, is 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 you mentioned earlier about sort of um, fertilizers and fossil fuel based um, fertilizers and other things. Is it is it part of your mission to make uh, that? discussion of things like fossil fuel based um, fertilizers etc as much a, a thing of the past like lead, lead lined water pipes kind of thing you know? absolutely yeah I mean I'd, I'd like the the, uh, the analogy we sometimes make in the lab is the, the um, uh, looking at uh, Victorian medicine mm. 
mm. saying, you know, we're, we're not putting leeches on people anymore and, um, and, uh, and, and we're, we're actually, um, we've moved well beyond that. You know, the people will look at that in the same way and say, you, you won't believe that 100 years ago they used to spray chemicals on fields. People will say, oh, I can't, can't believe we ever did that. We, I'd love the, that to be a legacy of the Sainsbury Lab, that we uh, were part of that change in humanity. The way that we grew food was, was uh, in, a, in a way that didn't require um, that, uh, those interventions. And that's not to disrespect the science that's gone into their development, which has been some great science. You know, that's, and, and in many ways, it was a natural thing to do. Medicine mm. works very much on, on chemicals, on small molecules. You know, we, we're used to taking medicines. Uh, it was a natural thing for agriculture to do. Um, it just has consequences which were unforeseen, really. The fact that, um, that we didn't realise at the time that we, we couldn't have uh, agricultural systems being so heavily dependent on fossil fuels. And also, we didn't anticipate some of the environmental impacts that mm. we've seen. Um, and, and those impacts have been really quite profound in, with certain chemical classes you know, that, uh, that, have, um, that have been used in, um, historically, particularly in terms of, uh, of pesticides. You know, there have been unforeseen consequences. So uh, anything we can do to get away from that would, would be great. That's what, we're, mm. that's what we're, we're trying to do. Yeah. I think you can't, you can't get, you wouldn't do to get too hung up in sort of self uh, castigation about how we got there um, because yeah. uh, you know the scientists at the time did absolutely the best they could with what they had but we now know so much more as, as a society yeah. and and you you guys uh, are really enabling uh, the progress uh, beyond that um, I, I did also take a look at uh, the Langdale review into the UK plant science strategy and um, you know the in her foreword, Jane Langdale talks, and I know who's very involved in this, this very, um, is it the research park or the John Innes Centre? I can't recall which one she's. Yes, she's been, uh, she's been part of their science advisory board, yeah. Um, but she talks about increased collaboration, which is, is exactly uh, where you're heading with, with HP3, which is great. But what has uh, the Langdale Review meant to you as a, as a scientist, uh, the Sainsbury's Laboratories and Institution and the, and the, and the wider research park? and uh, plant science more, more broadly. Uh, what's it meant? Uh, where, do you, is, is it, where do you feel it's taking the field? Yeah. Well, I think it was a very prescient, you know, very important review because, and, and um, one of the most important things, it was community driven. So it was driven really by the plant science community. So, so I think, you know, they, they looked at, uh, at this uh, whole area and, and thought, what do we need to do? How could we, how could we organise and corral the talents of cross-plant sciences in the UK um, so that we achieve more, so that you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts? And that's really what Jane looked at. And, um, and I think there's some really important recommendations in there about the fact that we do need there to be some national hubs, um, so national centres of excellence, and uh, we need there to be better integration across the plant science community. It's quite fragmented. At the moment, we have lots of great expertise, but it's dotted around in uh, in rather small groups. So we need to think about ways in which we can integrate those. Um, we also need to think about the way we train the next generation of plant scientists. Um, I'm involved, as is Jane Langdale, who in uh, in, uh, in training um, graduate students and indeed undergraduates in plant sciences. We do uh, we have a, a Gatsby plant science network, which we're both involved with. So we're very conscious of how you, we need to 
invest in the next generation of scientists and make sure that many really talented people don't opt just to go into medicine, although obviously we need them to go there too. But we really need some of those to go into plant sciences and, uh, and realize that they can really make a profound difference to the world by studying plant sciences. Mm. So there's a, that's an important aspect of it. Uh, and otherwise it really is about making sure that we have sufficient scale uh, in terms of investment and, um, and sufficient scale in terms of capability like the HP3 project, that we actually have projects at that scale. And it won't just be here, it'll be across the whole country. You know, there's, they make recommendations around other centres which are really important in the UK, such as uh, Rothamsted or the James Hutton Institute in, um, in Dundee. You know, there are a number of key centres around the UK that are really, really important. And, um, and making sure that, that all of those are well-funded and integrated is, is important. Yeah. And it, it must be really, I don't want to say the word handy, but it cannot be a bad thing that the current science and technology minister is one George Freeman MP, who is himself a Norfolk MP, who yeah. I know because it was a, I used to work for, for his neighbour, Richard Bacon. It was a course of constant frustration to me that, that it was really George who, who got the research pack. I was like, I want to go and get involved. I want to go and find out more. Yes. Um, that, that, that can't be a bad thing, can it? No, I, I think there are the two really important things there is that I think uh, it, it's, it's obviously great that he's a, a Norfolk MP and he, he understands um, what goes on here at the Norwich Research Department and has been a really vocal supporter of it for, for many years. Also, the other thing that's key about George is he absolutely understands life sciences because he's got his ba background in that area. Mm. So he understands um, the relationship between discovery science and, and, um, and translation. And he does understand the importance of uh, generating a, an environment that will lead to, to spin out activity and will lead to, uh, to new company creation. So, so that's, I think, important. And that's not always been the case with ministers of, of whichever parties in power. Yeah, I'm not, you know, yeah. there, there've been, there, it, it sometimes has been difficult for some politicians to really grasp the really imp importance of, um, of agricultural biotechnology, or even an understanding of how the, um, how innovation actually works. Um, so, it, yeah, I think it's important that, uh, that people like George are in those positions, really. I mean, especially when the, the current administration, and no doubt, administrations to follow want to see the UK really lead on being a science and technology superpower whatever you think of that term but I think your this this park and the east of England more broadly is showing uh, very much a, le a lead playing a leading role I think just as a as, as, a, as a lay person as, as an observer let me ask you to reflect on this one of the things I try and do is obviously get across the whole of the region which can be difficult and I think um, sometimes there, there can be the appearance of silos, whereas breaking them down is really, and, and as you're trying to, you're gonna sh I'm sure you're going to show when HP3 goes ahead, an act of will to get those silos broken down and to get people talking and to get exciting conversations happening. Do you find that in science across the region, across the, the field, you don't get issued with an embossed invitation to, to, be, to be part of things. You actually have to go out and grab it and make it happen. You do, and, and I, I think you, you, yeah, you have to get engaged and you, and you have to pro be proactive about, uh, about talking to, to people. I mean, I think the, the whole area of innovation is, is one that um, 
I mean, to me, it's so important that you know you'd hope that on the political side, there's a sort of cross-party um, consensus on the importance of innovation, yeah. um, and uh, because ultimately, you know, if the, if the UK is going to to prosper in the future, a lot of it will be through the knowledge economy, and 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 the, and and, it's, and science will be fundamental to that. You know, we've got to have really strong science. We're lucky; we already do have very strong science in the UK. Um, it could be stronger still. Um, and uh, especially if if there was clearly if there was more investment, you, you, I'd bound, you know you'd bound to expect me to say that. But at the same time, it's not just the scale; it's the type of investment and the way that things are invested in. And um, and a lot of it is, as you say, about integration. It's trying to make sure that we we do that in a in an integrated way that we bring together different different types of expertise. One of the great things about the HP3 project is that the building is designed in such a way that it encourages what we call creative collisions. Yes. So you can't go from one part of the building um, without meeting someone else. Yes. So you, it, it means that those sort of chance coffee table encounters and discussions and ideas generation happen. Because that's the other thing that you notice that you can, it's very easy to get siloed in one place. You go to work, you go to your office, you go to your lab, you do what you do and you go home and you can mm. not meet anyone from, uh, and, and that's, what we want to try and avoid. We want to make sure that people always do meet up. Don't yeah, I think that the wonderful Ros Bird over at uh, the Centre of calls it engineered serendipity. Absolutely. Um, yes, which is, which is, which right. is a fantastic game. I might end up cutting this bit, but I'm going to ask you the question anyway, without, going, without mentioning the dread B word. Um, Horizon, is that programme, uh, obviously I know George is, is at the forefront of either getting us back in to Horizon as the UK or finding a, an alternative. But is that anything that affects you here, or is, is Horizon something that happens in to other sectors? Or no, we're everyone in the, everyone in the Sainsbury Laboratory has a, a, a large European Research Council grant. We all have ERC grants. Um, that innovation from Horizon Europe was really important. It was the first um, really uh, curiosity-driven research um, program launched by the European Union. Um, it's been in operation for just well more than a decade now, and it's become. Um, synonymous, really, with 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 high-performing institutions. You know, it's uh, uh, and uh, and also the, the the sort of career development of staff. You know, that they very often go go for a, uh, an ERC starter grant, then a consolidator grant, then an advanced grant. Each of these, each of those, is five years and very well funded, and enables them to do whatever they like. Um, we've benefited enormously from ERC funding, as have uh, the Johnists and all the institutes that. Uh, at uh, Earlham and Quadrant Two, and UEA, so we've we've benefited enormously by that. You know, about twenty percent, just over twenty percent of our income is from the European Union. So, so it's important. We've benefited from the underwrite. So the government's underwritten grants and newly awarded ones have still been underwritten by the UK government. It's not quite the same as the ERC. I mean, part of it is um, is wanting to be able to collaborate with the European scientists, but also to compete at the highest level. Um, it's, um, I think, I hate using football analogies, but it's a bit like the Champions League, that when you're competing at the European level, it's, you know, there, there is an argument, you know, the argument for, the, for Plan B has said that, well, we, we don't necessarily need to do that. We can put the, the equivalent amount of money and just make it for the UK. Well, it would be a bit like saying, well, you can compete in the Champions League, but you're not actually going to compete with anyone from Europe. You're just going to compete with your local team. And at the end of it, we'll give you a cash prize, which will be the same as the Champions League winners get. It wouldn't be quite the same. No. The level of act, the level, the quality and the activity wouldn't be the same. 
And it's exactly the same with science. You know, the, the scientists here, they, they love collaborating and they want to form big networks, but they also want to compete at the very highest level. And that's what we can do in the mm -hmm. ERC. And there's no competition like that. So it does matter a lot. Yeah. I think I think from what you're describing, those those who are sort of positing the uh, the the the, uh, the Union Jack alternative, I think they want from the sounds of it, they want it to be that way, but it isn't going to be that way. Scientists tend not to talk about the competition aspect of it, but if you want to drive up quality, if you want the science here to be the very best, then why not pitch it against the very best from a whole mm. continent, and then you'll find you're funding the best projects. And it, and it, and and it so, is from what you're saying, it, it does come across a bit like a Padjavon is the wrong word, but the wrong phrase, but it is like, oh, right, so you've got, you know, yeah. so you're, you've got one of those, I mean, so you I, must I, be good. I sit, I, mean, I sit on one of the panels at the EU that decides these grants, um, and, uh, and I can be in a room, and I've got experts from every country in, the, in, in Europe. I've got the world's leading experts around the table. They're deciding on what gets funded. If a UK grant gets funded through that, you can guarantee it's really, really good. It's, it's absolutely world-leading science. It's very hard to reproduce that, for any individual nation, not just us, any nation no, 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 to do indeed, that, it's really indeed. difficult to do. Um, and because it's got that badge of quality, everyone will want to be on those panels. And it's not just the Europeans, actually. You know, there's, there's people from North America, from the Far East, who are on those panels too. They'll come because they know they're reviewing the science from the whole continent. And they know that it's going to be very good. So it's actually really about the quality of reviewing, the quality of applications, the competition. That, that's what's so important about Horizon yeah. Europe. It's, uh, it's not just... Everyone emphasizes on all the news reports I've seen. Everyone emphasizes collaboration. That's that's important too, but it's not just that. It's actually exactly the same as in every other field of activity. It's it's competition and ensuring what's funded is the very very best. Yeah. That's what a lot of it's about. Before I sort of start wrapping up, but you ask you to reflect on the difference, if if there is a difference, or whether it's very kind of a global picture between the UK and and, and European approach to science and. The U.S. approach. I'm not. I'm not trying to make a value judgment. I'm just trying to see and understand what differences, if any, there are. I think um, if you just look at the figures, you know, the U.S. has a is a, a phenomenally in, in you know innovative um, society. It benefits because, of course, it draws in talent from anywhere in the world. So it draws in the very, very best talent from wherever. Um, it enables them uh, a lot of freedom in what they're able to do and uh, and it funds innovation and it also funds essentially what you'd call here patient capital it, it, it funds for a long time so you can uh, you can launch a, a company uh, on the basis of a very very little and you can get uh, funded for a long time until it turns into profit and you can see lots of examples of that. You know, you look at the huge companies that have formed and how long it took them to get to profit mm. um, from from Google and, and and Twitter, which is still not in profit, and so, and so on. You know, <laughs> um, but companies can um, really in a, innovate and grow. And and Europe as a continent has had problems in doing that. In, in if you look at the the formation of really large companies over the last few decades, we've been less good at that across mm. Europe. Um, I think the UK has a, a huge amount of, um, of entrepreneurial spirit and, and ambition in this area and, uh, and, and a lot of ingenuity. So I, I do think we're really good at this mm. and I think we are somewhat better than some of our European neighbours. Some of them, you know, they're, they're incredibly innovative companies in Germany, France and so on as well, of course, but, but we are good at it and, uh, and, and we, we definitely have 
a lot of the ingredients for having an innovative mm -hmm. society. I think the areas that we have done less well have been, some of these are financial, some of this is just the ability of, um, or the willingness of, of financial institutions to fund for the longer term and to enable companies to take bigger risks and to grow for longer. We've tended to exit earlier. We've investors have required a return at a much earlier stage mm. than they have in the US and they have in, in even in other European countries. So that's an area that we still need to deal with. And uh, and of course, you know, there's there's a huge disparity in where these uh, companies and are organized across across different parts of the UK, which is clearly a, mm -hmm. um, a, big, a big issue as, as well. Um, so I think that we, we have strong elements of, uh, of really good parts of, of the sort of European tradition of, uh, of, of science and innovation, and also very strong elements of, of the US approach to it. So, you know, we're, we're somewhere in the middle. Uh, we tend to beat ourselves up a lot about what we, what, that we, we don't do it very well. We actually do some parts of it really well. I think, you know, we do a lot of early stage translation really well. I think the area that we need to work on is how do you convert that into wealth creation and, and the growth of, uh, of the economy. Yeah. Um, and some of that is just simply by not exiting too early and taking bigger risks and seeing companies grow over a longer period of time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, the, the Langdale Review talks about the reluctance of the, the private sector uh, to, to, to get involved in, 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 in more things. Um, Genetic precision plant breeding bill. Is it a bill still or is it now yes. an act? It's, it's an act. It's passed. Ah, excellent. Yeah. There's been, I've seen a lot of LinkedIn, on LinkedIn about that. We've got obviously um, George being uh, the science minister, but we've also had, regionally speaking, Daniel Zeitner, MP for Cambridge and uh, the shadow farming minister, uh, was, was very, very closely involved in that bill, responding for the, as, for the opposition. What has that meant to the work that goes on here? Um, I think that we're, we're very encouraged by the fact that uh, the regulatory framework will now be uh, enable uh, more research in, uh, in, in gene editing to, um, to be developed you know, for the market. So it will be developed and, and we can undergo trials in an easier way. Um, our role is really to, to demonstrate the uh, the potential of, uh, of new technologies and the potential for what they could do for, uh, for the development of new crops. And I think that the bill does really help us do that. Um, I think we just need to have a, a, a very, I, th I think actually the public understand this very already very clearly really, that we need to have an open mind to new technologies and the way they could be deployed. And of course we need to have um, a regulatory framework in which the public has confidence and uh, and the publicly funded institutions they know are involved in the research to give them confidence that this is actually being done um, in a rigorous scientific manner um, and uh, and under those circumstances you know I, I think uh, I think it has a really important part to play in the in the development of, of new crops um, it's not a silver bullet there's going to be lots of other things we need to do we need to take the lessons from all sorts of things so um, the, the, the whole regen agriculture movement um, have mm. great ideas about how to look after soil quality and, uh, and how to ensure that the microbiome associated with crops is, is looked after. There's a lot that we can learn from the science of agroecology. Um, but at the same time, if we can actually draw upon the genetic potential of crops and we can then enable that 
knowledge to be um, deployed more quickly than, use, than conventional plant breeding by actually moving the genes um, by genetic modification or by editing them by genetic, um, by genome editing, then that has greater potential for us to enable us to, to deal with some of the other problems that we face. You know, so we've, we face, as we've talked about previously, this great existential crisis really <laughs> in terms of climate change, which we have to deal with. Um, that means we need the full range of tools um, to in, enable us to do that. And what we need from government is the regulatory framework to in, enable the, the, the public to have confidence in what we're doing, to know that it's everything that it's being uh, thoroughly tested. Uh, we expect the same in medicines. We expect the same in food quality. We, we, you know, we, we do expect the same in, in all of these areas. Uh, I think we're going to expect it in artificial intelligence. You know, we need the yeah. same. We need, we need a strong... Uh, regulatory framework in all of those areas that, in which the public has confidence, but we also want, don't want to stifle innovation. We want to make sure that we can innovate, because the only way out of these problems is to innovate. You know, we found that ultimately, how do we get out, how do we get out of the pandemic? It was innovation. We, we innovated. We made new vaccines. We did more genomic surveillance work. We innovated our way out of the problem. That's how we're that's how we're going to to overcome climate change. We'll have to innovate our way out of this problem that we're in. We will, yeah. So. Um, so it's a balance, you know, we, we need regulation that people have confidence in. We also need to have a, a, a culture that enables innovation to proceed. Fantastic. Professor Nick Talbot, that was uh, so exciting, the things that are happening here. The uh, developments that are to come, uh, watching with huge amount of interest. Um, you are playing, you're at the forefront of playing so many critical roles. <laughs> I like playing in, in goal and every, every position to go back to football metaphors of the field all at once and so many so many problems but uh, it's fantastic that this institute this park this region is at the forefront of addressing so many of those and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today thank you so much Price. for coming on Easter Promise thank you Thanks thank very you very much. much it was a huge pleasure to meet and chat with Professor Talbot and to visit the Sainsbury Laboratory it is a vital part of what makes the East of England such a rich and vibrant place to conduct science and puts our region at the heart of discovery. Oh, hello. This is a gap between two Eastern Promise features that would be ideal for an advertisement. Because if you want to reach an audience of senior, director-level professionals, entrepreneurs, scientists, academics and creatives across the east of England, that's Norfolk, Suffolk, Cambridgeshire and Essex, then Eastern Promise is in a class of its own. You don't need to have an advert made. I can help you with that. Or I can just read out text that you've prepared. To secure this space for four episodes of Eastern Promise, costs start at £25. To find out more, contact me at mike at easternpromise.site. And now, back to our scheduled programming. From today's generation of top scientists to the researchers of the future now, this year's Royal Norfolk show will see a new addition to the Discovery Zone, the STEM Village. That's STEM with an extra M for medicine. 
the organizers of the STEM Village, Dr. Samantha Fox of the Youth STEM Awards CIC, and Dr. Shannon Woodhouse of the Food and Farming Discovery Trust are here to tell us more. It's a beautiful day. God, that was cliched. It's a beautiful day here at the Royal Norfolk Agricultural Association, uh, the Royal Norfolk Showground. And I'm here with previous guest, honoured guest on this very podcast, Dr. Samantha Fox of the Youth STEM Awards CIC. And a new guest, Dr. Shannon Woodhouse of the Food and Farming Discovery Trust. Welcome both. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hello. And what a delight to, ha- to meet you in person, because last time it was over uh, the magic of uh, the interweb. And But we are here to discuss a very, very exciting project coming up for the Royal Norfolk Show this year, 2023, which all listeners, I'm sure, will be buying tickets for as we, as we speak. Sam, tell us about the STEM Village, which sounds an exciting place to be. <laughs> It will be. And I am really excited to be involved with this um, and really honoured to have been asked to coordinate it, actually, uh, for the Royal Norfolk Show. Um, And STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Maths and Medicine, just to get that out there in the beginning. And this is a new zone for the Royal Norfolk Show, which is focused on education. And this area is really going to be targeted at the older teenagers, so from about the 14 to 19 years, sort of filling a gap and really building on what they've uh, been doing in the last few years, and which Shannon will be talking more about the the wonderful Discovery Zone. But yeah, it's a really exciting, innovative new area to bring lots of our wonderful organisations in the region together focusing on showcasing not only careers in STEM and the, and the great opportunities there are for young people, but also innovations in STEM and how thinking about the future, those innovations will help us uh, tackle some of the global challenges that we face today. Those are incredibly important. And I think I remember being at the show last year and there were your colleagues there from Earlham, the Earlham Institute and Quadrum. And I believe somebody from the Quadrum Institute was wandering around dressed as, an, as a giant poo, which is, you know, uh, an, an, a, a great day in the office, uh, I'm sure. Uh, I, once had, I once had to, for work, dress up as a green dragon. Not quite in the same level as dressing up as a poo. That'd be an interesting meeting. But these these... They are so exciting to go to because you get the, the huge buzz of the scientists uh, and the professionals in the field interacting with young people and drawing those people into STEM with the extra M. And it's, it's, it's such an important opportunity for them to, to ask questions and to, 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 to be there with the people who, who hopefully they sh- will want to emulate and, and follow into the field. But Shannon, tell us more about what the STEM village will be, the, the discovery zones in general, and, and why why this, why now? So I coordinate the discovery zone, which hopefully many of you will be familiar with. Um, so that is primarily targeted at um, younger students, so sort of the 5 to 14 mark. We're very happy with how that's gone last year. Um, hopefully some of you will remember we were focusing on, on potatoes and we had lots of things going on. Um, but we felt that there was a bit of a gap and that we weren't quite targeting those older students. So whilst we had quite a few of them coming, um, and certainly some of them volunteer in the Discovery Zone and do a fabulous job um, interacting with the school groups that come through, engaging with them, taking them along the trail that we have in the Discovery Zone, we wanted a, a space that was 
for them. So this is very much why this has come about um, and, and why Sam is involved, because obviously she um, does wonderful work with the Youth STEM Award um, and, and was an, an obvious um, choice to help us drive this um, initiative forward. Absolutely, I, I I can only echo what a, a fantastic and only choice really. It's 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 like it's like it's like who is it? It's it it, it, it well, oh my god, it has to be. It, well, no, no, no. Come on, be honest. Be fair. It has to be. It, it had to be really. There 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 is you know certainly in this in 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 this part of the region. Uh, you know, there's there's there there is no better choice uh, than yourself, Sam. And so, what is your hope? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll come on to ask Shannon about sort of the because this is some exciting. Uh, if you're sort of, uh, oh, that's going to get cut. Sam, tell us what what it is that the STEM Village experience will be like for kids coming along, young adults coming along, and what you're hoping that they'll take away from the experience. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a really fun day, but also really educational and hopefully inspirational as well. So a number of things. I would like people to have their horizons broadened about the whole range of opportunities there are in and across the STEM fields. So, for example, there will be live opportunities from a number of employers for apprentices or apprenticeships that are going to be available. So there are not only the opportunity to sort of think about the potential future careers they might have, there will be live opportunities for people to get involved. If people want to find out about the potential to say do an engineering apprenticeship, there will be companies with live vacancies. So there will be the potential to actually uh, speak to people about that and maybe come away with a potential new next step in their career. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And I think apprentices, uh, apprenticeships are something that we don't often talk about enough. I often work with higher education organisations like UBA and we talk a lot about maybe more traditional career paths that people think about when they think about a, a career in STEM. But there's also amazing opportunities these days for apprenticeships. And this is something that's really uh, becoming something more available and more organisations are getting involved in. Um, so it's a great opportunity for young people to find out about the potential for their next steps in their careers in a various different uh, fields of STEM, but also just finding out about those innovations. For example, we're going to have an amazing uh, zone which is focusing on clean energy and oh, wow. offshore yeah, wind. So cool. yeah. yeah, as a plant scientist, my career at the John Lewis, I really didn't know anything about this at all, mm -hmm. other than you go to the coast and you can see some wind turbines off, off in the in the distance they're out at sea. Yeah. Well, we're going to be having build your own wind turbines in paddling pools. So, oh, wow. <laughs> because I didn't know that, that wind turbines, are, I think the next generation, they're floating. They're floating. They're yeah. floating. So it's going to be, people are going to have the opportunity to find out about the technology involved, how, how this is producing or going to produce uh, clean energy for our region in the future, but also about the amazing number of opportunities of jobs. And there are many, and I think we're going to have lots of organisations represented, including the developers themselves. So we've got Vattenfall, we've got uh, Orsted, and we've got Equinor going to be there yeah. as part of the key, key partners as part of this zone, doing hands-on activities. There's going to be um, virtual reality headsets, so people will be able to visit the site of the, of the wind farm and see how that feels and learn about the technology and the career. So I think it's those two things. It's about careers but it's also just about learning and about how these technologies are working and how they're going to change our lives in the future how they're going to help us 
get to net zero. And that's not just for the school children, that's going to be of interest to all visitors. I mean, there's so many fields um, that the East of England specialises in that I can think of just off the, off the top of my head that would really benefit hugely from being a part of this. Uh, you know, and uh, it, it's funny, the conversation I was having uh, not that long ago, I mean, this, it wasn't in a, in a science field, but the principle still applies um, of, of, of getting apprenticeships to people to get them engaged in, in a particular field um, is so important and so and uh, so ripe with opportunity that uh, it, it does make the mind boggle. And I can think of so many people. I mean, you, 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 I'll turn this into a question. I can think of so many people who would do such a fantastic job as being part of the STEM village and have such knowledge and experience to impart. Is, th is there still scope for organisations to get involved? There is. There is. We've got, um, we've got some limited space left, so there definitely is space, and we'd be really keen to hear from any of your fantastic listeners who think, yes, I can contribute to this. I can bring something. So whether that is doesn't have to be live vacancies. You don't have to be someone who's recruiting 16-year-olds. It might just be someone who wants to showcase innovation and be part of some really exciting new development at the Royal and Office Show. It's a great opportunity to, to raise your brand and to reach out to a lot of people yeah. and add to our exciting list of uh, exhibitors that are already going to be there. Well, I can I can think of several people who I, w I won't name. Please do get in touch. But I will get into I will get in touch with them and give them a prod um, and say you need to be part of this um, because there are, as I say, lots of people doing such fantastic work. Shannon, are you, are you able to tell us anything about ticketing arrangements? Tell us more. Yes, absolutely. So as Sam was quite rightly saying, the show is just a fantastic platform because of how many visitors we do get come through the gates. Um, but one thing that I'm certainly very proud of um, working with the schools is how many school children we do get come through. And that is all the way from early years right up to sixth form age. Um, so there really is something for everyone at the show. And um, I really want to stress to teachers that those school tickets that we offer to school children are free and there are still school tickets available for any schools that wish to attend. Um, that also includes um, tickets for any um, staff members that are helping within allowed ratios as well. In terms of um, the STEM village, do you have a sense yet of how the two days are going to be constructed? The STEM village is going to encompass a number of different zoned areas, including clean energy, engineering, and then our STEM marquee, which has a whole mix of different uh, fantastic uh, exhibitors taking part. And what the, how it will be as a, as a visitor coming in, whether you're a school group or a member of the public, you'll, you'll come into this area just like any other part of the, of the Norfolk show. And you'll be able to wander around and explore the different areas and what's going on. And essentially what that will be is hands-on exhibits um, with workshops and ways to get involved. So there'll be, for example, have a go at putting a piece of machinery together or racing something down the, the strip of grass. And there'll be many competitions oh, wow. as well. They'll be put together a wind turbine. They'll be trying out something on virtual reality headsets. But of course, there'll be the chance to engage with people doing these interesting roles. So for everything from uh, the scientists at the Norwich Research Park, and actually we've got a great exhibition called What is a Scientist, where they have done uh, interviews and photos from a whole range of different people to showcase the diversity of what makes a scientist. And, and several of those people are going to be there on the day ready to talk to members of the public. 
So it should be a really fun experience and people should plan to spend a chunk of time in that area, actually. It's not just to come in and walk past. You know, there's stuff to get involved with, have a go, and there'll be competitions as well and all sorts of things. So it should be really good fun. Should be, will be, from the sound of it, will be sure really good fun. No, I'm, I'm positive um, because I, I like the sound of it already. Do you want to talk to Shannon about the Food and Farming Discovery Trust? Because I'm conscious that we've mentioned it uh, and, you know, listeners will and should go back and listen to Sam talk about uh, the Youth STEM Awards CIC, which, bigging up a fellow CIC operator, uh, director, is, um, is, is, is mandatory here. Tell us about the Food and Farming Discovery Trust and how you kind of fit into this whole jigsaw. Sure, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, so the Food and Farming Discovery Trust are a small educational charity based here at the Norfolk Showground, and we operate very much under the umbrella of the Royal Norfolk Agricultural Association. So effectively, we're their education arm. Um, so we very much aim to teach young people in Norfolk all about food farming in the countryside, and that's through both the series of in-person events that we get involved with, for example, the Royal Norfolk Show, of course, which is our biggest event that we're involved in throughout the year. Um, but we also take part in Norwich Science Festival. Um, you can find us um, out and about on Open Farm Sunday, um, getting involved in the Aylsham Show. But we also have online resources and we also go into really? schools. Yes, yes. Right. Um, we launched actually our new website last September, which we're all still very excited about. Um, and if you head to that website, you can actually find some resources on there. Um, to, to do either in the classroom or at home. Um, and we also have some interactive maps on there so you can explore Norfolk and find out what's growing. Um, so what is actually out in the field? And you can wow. do that either by region, so you can have a look around and see what's near you, um, or you could do that by season and find out, so for example, on this beautiful spring day, what you might see out in the field and how that might look in the summer the autumn and the winter. Um, so yes, so we have lots of really exciting bits on there. So, and we really do encourage people to have a, have a look if you haven't already. So are you, are you kind of, is your ambit Norfolk? Um, yes. and do you have kind of relations with other similar bodies in, in sort of like Suffolk, for example? Yes, so we work, we're very lucky to collaborate with a lot of different organisations and individuals, so obviously the Youth STEM Award, also um, the Saw Trust, and then further afield, so we have links to the Suffolk Agricultural Association um, and are hoping to work with them much more closely on some initiatives. We're already involved, of course, with the um, Norfolk and Suffolk Skills and Careers Festival, which was yes, held indeed. recently. Yes, um, so yes, very much Norfolk, but we do, we do go a little bit further afield when we can. And Shannon, one of your fantastic projects is actually going to be showcased in the STEM Village, isn't it? Because Ooh, it is, you, yes. you've, you've been working with the students at East Norfolk Sixth Form College. Yes, so this is a project that I'm very, I am very excited about this one. Um, this is something completely new for this year. And, and we've been working with some of the um, uh, game design students at East Norfolk Sixth Form. So they are working on a really exciting project where they're building video games um, to teach primary school children about agriculture and farming. Um, so they will be showcased on the day, but also the students will be talking about the programming and the development work that's actually gone on behind that final product, which uh, visitors will be actually able to have a go at and play on the day. Um, so we're really looking forward that to that. So Just, yeah, trying to think of new ways to engage young people in agriculture. Um, and it's brilliant that this, um, what these students have done so far. I am really astounded with the, with the work they've produced. Amazing. 
and an amazing opportunity for the young people because they get to be an exhibitor for the day. They get to stand on their own stand next to the scientists from, say, the Sainsbury Laboratory or the John Innes Centre. They're going to be there as the people talking to the, to the other students coming along, telling them about their experience, teaching them about what they've, uh, what they've done with their, their games design. Um, and I think for them as an opportunity to, to build their skills in communication um, and engage in the public is, is great. I have to say, just as, just as a, a, a tiny segue, uh, it doesn't surprise me that it's East Norfolk College because they were very closely involved in Sink the City, which is a hackathon that takes place at the, the, the King Centre uh, every year. And they, they took a fantastic cohort of students along. And I watched this one particular student who basically had to get her friend to come on stage and do the initial pitch because she was so shy and so nervous. And it was a great pitch. It was an app to help people recycle. And by the end of that 54 hours, she was leading the pitch on stage with a confidence that you would not have pegged beforehand. Um, uh, and I don't know if I should name her or not because it's, it's like, hmm, ethically, ethically grey area. But yeah, I mean, if you go back to listen to the coverage of 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 um, uh, of Sink the City on on the podcast feed, you can you can hear more about her. But it was East Norfolk College. What forward thinking gang of people they are. Well, it's wonderful to hear they're involved in this. And if the Discovery Zone last year was an absolute blast, you taught me a lot, mainly to how to screen out background noise because the buzz, the energy in that tent was so incredible that I was like, sorry, well, you, you work from who? With my microphone. And, um, and to know that you're involved in it as well, Sam, that is so magnificent. And what a brilliant fusion of the Youth STEM Awards CIC, which does amazing work globally from, from Norwich, but globally, uh, in, in, help, in helping, encouraging the, the, the Duke of Edinburgh Award for the Sciences is how I described it this very morning. Shannon, tell us, what can you expect from the Discovery Zone more broadly? So this year, um, the theme for the Discovery Zone is Norfolk Fruit and Veg, um, which is quite broad, but quite exciting because it means we can showcase so much produce that is grown locally here in Norfolk. Um, so we're going to be um, having a trail throughout the zone again, which will start with a polytunnel for visitors to walk through. Um, oh, wow. Don't worry, the sides will be open. We don't want anybody getting too warm and, <laughs> and passing out. Um, but there'll be a polytunnel to go through. Sticking for tomato. <laughs> yes, quite. Um, followed by some wonderful planters that are going to be planted up with a range of different fruits and vegetables so that the young people can actually see those things growing. Because I think quite often there's a bit of a disconnect in what the plants actually look like compared to what we might go and buy in the supermarket. So we're very excited um, to do that. And we've um, got some wonderful organisations involved. So Place UK, East Coast Growers and Thompson Burgess Growers are all very kindly providing resource for that, which is wonderful. And the along the trail as well, we're going to have pieces of equipment and machinery that are used on farm. And we'll be talking about sustainability, insect netting, trickle irrigation. There will be a huge range of things um, available for young people to see. Um, and finally, that will be ending with uh, the opportunity to make some fruit kebabs. So we're going wow, to be using go. the things on the trail um, to get you, hopefully, thinking of fun ways to, to eat healthily. Um, so that is the, the main trail. And then we're very pleased to have um, Thornage Hall and the Papillon Project joining us as well as part of the zone. 
and also Norwich Science Festival returning um, with their science tent, which will be full of interactive and hands-on activities that um, students can take part in. It is, it is not mandatory to dress as a giant poo. No, although I hear that one of the Norwich Science Festival staff members may be coming as a giant strawberry this year, which I is slightly not. more pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I hope they've got a volunteer or, or at the very least a straw drawing exercise for the strawberry. Every, um, everybody thinks scientists, you know, they're very serious people, yeah. but actually any opportunity to dress up <laughs> <laughs> now there's there, there's a mental image that's going to take a while to shift. I'm going to have to do the the interview I'm having later with Nick Tolbert. Apparently, <laughs> scientists take any opportunity to dress up. What's your costume of choice, <laughs> Professor Tolbert? Um, well, there we are. There we have it. Um, so so Sam, have you given us the full ambit? of who's been involved this year or are there any, anyone else that you want to... Oh, there's so many. I'm trying to remember everyone because I did say there's STEMM. So with the extra M for medicine, we've got the NHS coming along to showcase oh, careers in, in, uh, for the allied health professionals. So that, that's, that'd be fantastic. We've got vets going to be there. So lots of young people interested in finding out about careers in veterinary science. So Westover uh, Large Animal Vets will be there. We've actually got... Um, the University Technical College Norfolk, UTCN students are going to be there showcasing some of the work they've been doing. We've got the UK School Sustainability Network going to be there talking about how young people can calculate their carbon budget and be more sustainable. So the overall theme for the zone is STEM and we have loads and loads of different organisations taking part. Ah, I mustn't forget vertical farming. This is no, an agricultural absolutely. show as well. Yes, we've got a really exciting couple of exhibits going to be talking to people about how uh, certainly one future of farming is vertical, it's straight is. up. So we've got One Farm, which is a really exciting new uh, food production uh, centre, and they're going to be showcasing how they're growing micro herbs uh, in the UK. So it's all to do with sustainability and food security. And we've got uh, the Growbotics, a uh, small company, which are producing these fantastic equipment to help people grow vertically oh, oh. and possibly linking up to schools as well. This is amazing. Yeah. yeah, there's just so much. I could go on and on. But, yeah, there is still room. So if people want to get involved, do get in touch. The virtuous circle that food, farming and science is building here that I think I mentioned way went back when I talked to Mark uh, Nicholas, um, who runs the RNAA. It is amazing. What you know, this this you, you, you get similar things out in in Texas with cotton, uh, but here you've got uh, the food enterprise part. You've got this very very uh, f fantastic establishment we're sitting in. You've got the Norwich Research Park as well. And there's it's no it's no small wonder that in Cambridge they sort of talk about the science that goes on here, the agricultural uh, agritech that goes on here in hushed and reverential tones as well. They should. Sam, Shannon, thank you so much for coming on Eastern Promise and telling us about what a hugely exciting time is going to be had by all who are visiting the, 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 uh, the STEM village in the Discovery Zone at the Norfolk Show this year. Wow, I, ca I can't wait. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. And we look forward to seeing you there. Anytime. You I must come. I shall, be. I shall be there. I shall be. Thank you very much and all the best. Thanks. Thank you. The STEM Village. Be there. Bring your young scientists of the future too, because there is a rich and bright future for them in the labs and workshops across our region. From Industrial Park to the Cambridge Life Science Clusters and back 
to the Norwich Research Park. There's opportunity aplenty in the east of England. And now... Frying tonight? Yes, it's time to peel some spuds and batter some responsibly sourced fish in another... Crowd sorcery. Yes, crowd sorcery. So, I asked you for your recommendations for the best fish and chip shops and restaurants in the east of England. And the boat has well and truly come in on this one. Let's start with Andrew Brammer, commercial director, storyteller and public speaker. It's got to be the Three Cottages Fish Restaurant in North Walsham. Take away and sit down. Most Saturday nights, we put our order in for cotton chips, mushy peas and tartar sauce. Best fish and chips going. Also, if you fancy sitting by the sea, the Kingfisher Fish Bar in Walcott is definitely worth a visit. Now, that prompts a question from Michelle Sorrell, volunteer manager, passionate about campaigning, public affairs and stories. Says Michelle, do they still do ice creams from the window in summer? Loved that as a kid. Andrew Brammer responds, I think the cafe next door might still do that. I'll check it out one sunny day. Meanwhile, Andrew Stronach, head of external relations at the Quadrum Institute, says, The Grosvenor in Norwich is great. My kids love it. But number one in Chroma is also top-notch. Deep-fried brie and chips on the pier. Dunk your chips in the brie. It'll warm the cockles of your heart. Thank you, Andrew. And we have that verified independently by Norfolk champion David Powells, who says, I have to second Andrew on these points. Neil Griffin, provider of inspiring knowledgeable business support across the UK's leading provider of innovation spaces, which is Oxford Innovation, gives us his Suffolk recommendations. Hands down! Oldborough Fish and Chip Shop and a pint in the white heart. Do you know, I am loving the back and forth on these choices because Chief Operating Officer at Tech East, Tim Robinson, the coolest man in tech, agrees with you there, Neil. Although he adds that the Grosvenor in Norwich is number two. Do you know, appropriately for a fishy food stuff, Ted Leggett, Interim Culture and Events Manager at Norwich City Council, names the nautical Long John Hill Chippy. Says Ted, I don't even know what Irish curry sauce is supposed to be but it's delicious. Also, deep-fried jammy dodgers are insanely good. No, no, I'm sorry. I've read that sentence multiple times now, and it still doesn't make any sense. Still, don't knock them till you've tried them. And, and clearly, Ted, you're not alone in appreciating their craft. Genial gentleman of business, Brian Bush, says, Long John Hill is a fair shout. And Ted doesn't stop there in providing culinary advice, even to Jamie Dady, factory support at Condimentum, helping to produce the finest ambient ingredients. Says Jamie, when we worked at Coleman's, we would have Long John Hill fish supper, and it was superb. Are the fish cakes still made in a homemade style? Alas, Ted cannot confirm or deny this, as, by his own admission, he's more of a pie and sausage customer. I hope that's not a euphemism. Jack Weaver, 
Greater Thetford Partnership Manager at Breckland Council, has high praise for Jason's fish and chips in Rackheath. Our local for many years, says Jack, and always faultless. Back to Brian Bush now for the holistic view. Any seaside chippy as just cannot beat chips and seagulls. Hmm, not sure that's the best combination, Brian. Ow! Brian continues, but also my near enough local is Stoke Holy Cross and they are just excellent. Now, another vote for Norwich's Grosvenor Fish Bar comes from Jamie Dady, who adds, love the variety of things you can have. The Bang Bang sauce is a real winner. I even have it delivered. Brackets, lazy. Bang Bang sauce sounds like something you shouldn't smack repeatedly on the bottom, like a new ketchup bottle, just in case. But let's end by just taking a moment to spare a thought for Rebecca White. Preventing homelessness, a CEO of your own place, CIC. I don't eat fish and chips, says Rebecca. Oh. I'm most dreadfully sorry. And there it all is. That was episode 62 of Eastern Promise. I was Mike Rigby. And next week, we have another look back at the best of the guests, which must mean I'm on holiday. Yay! Until then, I want to thank Professor Nick Tolbert of the Sainsbury Laboratory, Dr Samantha Fox and Dr Shannon Woodhouse, and Engineer 49, who can actually, and this is true, speak to dolphins in their own language. I asked him how he learnt it. He said he learnt it riding on the back of a dolphin and he sort of picked it up by accident. Do you know, I was very sceptical, but he said, no, it was by accident, not as I thought, on purpose. What? What? You knew that was coming. Come on. I'll catch you next time. So, until then, bye for now. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production for the Eastern Promise East Anglia Community Interest Company.